You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. The scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. We're going to read the first 14 verses of Jeremiah 31, and then we'll turn to the verses 31 to 34. As you know, the book of Jeremiah or the prophecies of Jeremiah often considered to be rather discouraging, rather bleak, filled with judgment and misery. But in the midst of all of that, there are also these chapters, these times when the grace, love, and mercy of God shine through. And that's what you find here in Jeremiah 31 as well. We begin our reading then at verse 1 to verse 14 and then 31 to 34. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they will be my people. This is what the Lord says, the people who survive the sword will find favor in the desert. I will come to give rest to Israel. The Lord appeared to us in the past, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. I will build you up again, and you will be rebuilt, O virgin Israel. Again, you will take up your tambourines and go out to dance with the joyful. Again, you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The farmers will plant them and enjoy their fruit. There will be a day when watchmen cry out on the hills of Ephraim, Come, let us go up to Zion, the Lord our God. This is what the Lord says, Sing with joy for Jacob. Shout for the foremost of the nations, make your praise heard and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. See, I will bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. A great throng will return. They will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble. Because I am Israel's father, and Ephraim is my firstborn son. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them, and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will ransom Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord. The grain, the new wine, and the oil, the young of the flocks and herds, they will be like a well-watered garden, and they will sorrow no more. Then maidens will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance, and my people will be filled with all my bounty declares the Lord. And then we turn to verse 31 and following, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law 
in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. I preached to you this morning from the word of our God as the church summarizes and confesses this in Lord's Day 49 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is the third petition? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that is, grant that we and all men may deny our own will and without any murmuring, obey thy will, for it alone is good. Grant also that everyone may carry out the duties of his office and calling as willingly and faithfully as the angels in heaven. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, it is supper time. Food is placed on the table. Grace is said. But there is a problem. It's about the beans. There is no way that Billy is going to eat the beans. Mother insists, father utters some threats under his breath. Billy digs in his heels. No beans. Another scenario. Joe and Jane are driving around in a strange city looking for a certain location, but they cannot find it. Joe keeps on driving and driving, and Jane keeps on insisting that Joe stop at a service station and ask for directions. Joe pretends to be deaf and keeps right on driving. There is no way he's going to stoop so low. One more scene. It takes place in school. The class is almost over. The teacher is passing out the homework assignments. He explains the assignments. He gives some direction as to how they should be done. He also gives the students some deadlines. The students go home, but the homework is nowhere to be seen. Facebook, YouTube, iPods are all much more important, much more interesting. And so the homework is left undone. The deadline arrives, and it's still not done. So what do all of these scenes have in common? At first sight, you might want to say, well, they don't have anything in common. Where's the common denominator when it comes to beans, directions, and homework? There is none, we say. But there is. For actually, all three of these episodes describe what you might call a battle of the wills. Whether it be Billy versus his parents, Joe versus Jane, or the teacher versus his students, they all have this in common. Every person insists on his or her own will 
and way. None of them want to be told anything by anyone else. None of them want to do what the other says. In other words, I want my will to triumph in this particular matter. Now all of this, beloved, is no small and insignificant thing. No, this business of wills, this matter of who to listen to and who to follow, the issue of whose will is best, is a huge issue. And it plays a role everywhere in life. It's something that pops up in all manner of human relationships. And I might also add it's something that ruins many a relationship. And so little wonder, therefore, that the Lord Jesus includes it in his brief but vital prayer. And only notice that in doing so, he, as it were, raises the stakes. For he reminds us that this battle of the wills is not just confined to a human level. No, he says it also rages at a much higher and greater level. The relationship between God and his creatures and even between God and his children is often marked and marred by the same kind of battle. Just whose will is getting done here on earth? The will of God or the will of man? Yes, and as a result, the Lord Jesus gives his disciples and us Another petition to pray about. I preached to you this morning on the following theme, the third petition, Father, do your will on earth. And we shall see that here we have a call for us to rejoice in the good will of God. Secondly, to confess the broken will of man. And finally, to embrace the perfect will-keeping of Christ. Now, beloved, it has to be said that whenever this petition comes up for preaching or teaching, the main thing that tends to get all of the attention is the will of God. And first we turn our attention to the what, and we ask, what now is the will of God? And then thereafter we turn our attention to the where, and the question, where can we find or do we find the will of God? And thereafter we turn our attention to the how, strictly speaking, how do we do the will of God? And after this follows a host of other kinds of questions. And you know, if you think of it, all of that in a way is fine. A lot of these questions need to be asked, they need to be answered. We need to be reminded that God has a will that consists of laws and decrees and ordinances and directions, information and instruction. Our God has not left us in the dark when it comes to what he wants, nor to what he deems to be best. And neither should there be all kinds of confusion as to where to find this will. And that's admitted there is a lot of confusion about that these days. All too many people feel a certain tug on their heart or they get this newfangled idea in their brain and they stand up and they claim that God has spoken to them. 
Why we have no end of people claiming to possess these days a direct pipeline to heaven. They don't need to study. They don't need to read anything. They don't need to confess anything. God tells them, and as a result, they have the straight goods. But alas, beloved, as attractive as that may sound, it doesn't edify. And I'm not denying that God uses people and events and even feelings or intuition. But the fact of the matter is, that the greatest and the best guide to the will of God remains the Word of God. It's His Word that represents the real lamp for our feet and the best light for our path. You just cannot separate God's will from God's Word. And neither is there anything else that comes close to the Word of God. But then, beloved, while there are all of these questions and issues about the identity and the nature of the will of God, there is a sense in which that actually is not the main issue in this petition. No, the main issue here is about something else. And if you ask what else, well, actually it's about how to see and how to evaluate the will of God. It has to do with a certain conviction about that will. What conviction? Well, read the first half of answer 124 of the Catechism. It explains the third petition by saying, grant that we and all men may obey not our own will or deny our own will, and without any murmuring obey thy will, for it alone is good. So what is the conviction that I am referring to here? Is it the conviction that we need to deny our own will? Is it the conviction that we need to stop murmuring? Is it the conviction that we should obey God's will? Now, beloved, the conviction that I am referring to here is the conviction that God's will is fundamentally, basically, and intrinsically good. Indeed, that it alone is good. You see, the reason why our Savior wants us to deny our own will and to obey God's will is because it alone is so good, so great, and so gracious. That's his way of saying there isn't anything higher or better or richer or greater or lovelier than the will of our God. And you know, fundamentally, that's the conviction that should drive us. That's the understanding that we should all have when it comes to the third petition. There isn't any other will like the will of our God. Nothing else compares to it in goodness. You know, if you think of it everywhere, the scriptures remind us of that fact. 
Look at how the Lord, the Lord God makes man in the beginning. He makes him in his own image and likeness. He makes him good, even very good. He gives him a wonderful task to perform in creation. And he has all kinds of glorious promises to his life. And did man jump for joy and get to work? Only for a little while. And then he rebelled. And so did God get nasty and write him off? No, our God punished. But he also gave new hope and new promises. And he builds on these things. He, he sets Noah aside and preserves him together with his family. Later he sets Abraham aside and begins the great work of nation and people building. And when this new nation finds itself enslaved, he rescues it, he sets it free, he supplies its need, he defends it against its enemies. He's always patient and forgiving. We've read that in Jeremiah 31. And as well, God gives freedom to his people. And he shows them how to march on in freedom. You know, that's actually why he gave them the law of the Ten Commandments. Those are commandments for the road. And why these commandments? No, beloved, not to tie them down and not to hem them in and not to make their lives miserable. Not at all. Take only a few commandments. He begins, you shall have no other gods before me. Why did he give that commandment? Is it because our God is an egotist? You can't stand the competition. No, it is because only the one true God of the covenant can really satisfy us and truly help us. And why does he insist on rest on the Sabbath day? Is he out to bore us or control us? Now again, he's looking out for our well-being. No one can work every day of the week and remain healthy. No one can work all the time and still have room in their lives for God. We need our rest. And so, beloved, we can deal with all of the commandments. And the point and the thrust of all of them is exactly the same. God gives them to bless our life with Him and to bless our life with our neighbor. You see, what God wants is a happy people. He wants us to enjoy Him and all His wonderful gifts. He wants us to soar. Oh, and beloved, if there is any remaining doubt about that, then there's only one thing to do, and that is look at His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Why did He send Him into this world? Why did He clothe Him with our flesh and our humanity? Was this nothing more than a grand experiment? Or was it a product of divine boredom? 
Or was it some kind of premature move? Now, beloved, the scriptures show us that all of this was very intentional and loving. Already in the name Jesus, you can read God's aim. It is to save his people from their sins. You see, everything he does, everything that God does, is about the greatness of his name and the well-being of his people. And isn't that what the Lord Jesus Christ himself reveals to us in John 6, 38 and following? He issues the following words, for I have come down from heaven, he says, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then he adds these words, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all that he has given to me, but raise them up at the last day. Oh, and just in case we don't any longer know what it is God's will for our lives, he adds, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up in the last day. Brother, did you catch that? Christ didn't come here to do his own thing. No, the Father sent him to do his thing. And sent him to do what? To keep the given. And to raise them up. Life, glory, eternity. Jesus says, that's the goal. Life, glory, eternity with God. And with all the people of God. Well, can anything be better than this? Is there somewhere in this life, in this universe, a nicer, greater, better will for our lives in this? Truly, only God's will is really and actually good. Yes, and beloved, you and I, we need to remember that and apply that to our lives. And especially when the going in this life gets tough, when you become seriously ill, when a loved one dies, when financial pressures mount, when troubles follow you around every day. You know, it's easy to confess that God's will is good, When everything comes up roses or as peaches and cream, but when the road of life confronts you with setbacks and obstacles and accidents and disasters, then it's another story. And yet even then, we need to hang in there. And we need to continue to confess persistently, God is good. His will is good. His goodness will triumph even in my broken life. But, of course, there is a problem here. 
And the problem, beloved, is with us. The fall of man into sin has done a lot of damage and perhaps the greatest damage has been done in the area of the human will. For as sinful fallen human beings, we so often think that our wills are best. They're the greatest, they're be-all and the end-all of everything. We now think that our wills are so good and great and that we do not need to heed or submit or listen to any other will. Yes, and anything and everything that challenges or competes with our will is in for a fight. Isn't that the case of the child who doesn't want to eat his beans or broccoli or asparagus or whatever have you? Isn't that the case of the husband who refuses doggedly to ask for directions? Isn't that the case of the student who prefers Facebook to workbook? What they all have in common is a determined insistence that their will and way is better. There's an old Frank Sinatra song. I think it was written originally by Paul Anken. Some of you may remember it. It's called, I Did It My Way. That's the refrain in the song. I did it my way. And that's the refrain in so many of the lives of people today. I did it my way. That sums it up. We insist on doing things our way. And in a manner of speaking, you know, that wouldn't be bad if our way was the best way, the perfect way, the wisest way. But it isn't. Our way is the fallen way, the broken way, the short-sighted way, and the way of sin. And we need to acknowledge that. As a child needs to recognize that mother does know, really does know best. And as a husband sometimes has to admit that maybe his wife knows better than he does. And as a student needs to acknowledge that the teacher perhaps, just perhaps, knows best. So we need to confess that our God knows best. He sees more, he knows more, he loves more, he understands more than any of us. And I know that's saying a lot. And I know it's not easy. The catechism uses that word murmuring. And you know where that comes from, don't you? The children of Israel as they're going through the desert. They were always murmuring. They were always talking back to God under their breath because they didn't like what they saw as His will for their life as they're going through the desert. They wanted something else. Something of their own making. 
And that's a common human disease. That's a disease for which we all need help. And thankfully there is help available. Actually, you can say there is threefold help available for dealing with our wills. The first help comes from the angels. The Catechism points us in this direction when it says, Grant also that everyone may carry out the duties of his office and calling as willingly and faithfully as the angels in heaven. In actual fact, you may know the angels play a number of different roles. They surround the throne of God every day and bring Him praise. Think of the end of Psalm 103. They they act as His messengers. Think of the angel Gabriel, especially around Christmas time. And they also act as His soldiers, as His heavenly army, fighting against the dragon, Revelation 12, verse 7. And they also serve the well-being of God's people. Think of Psalm 91. And how they guard the children of God. Yes, and in all of those different roles that they play, there is one thing that stands out, and that is their willingness and their faithfulness. Willingly they obey the Lord. Faithfully they serve Him. And the cause of his elect. And therefore, beloved, when you and I have, have trouble with living our lives under the will of God, we do well to remember the angels and to take a leaf out of their book. We have no better role models. But then if we are to remember the angels, let us also remember a second source of help. It comes from the Holy Spirit. You may notice the Holy Spirit is not mentioned anywhere in this Lord's Day 49. However, that is not necessary either, for it's abundantly clear from all of Scripture that He is our help. Lord Jesus says He's our counselor, the Spirit of truth. Jesus also says he lives with us and he lives in us and and he convicts us and the world of sin, righteousness and judgment and he helps us to see what ordinarily we would never see. And he enables us in a manner that we would never have imagined. His will and he will conform our wills to the will of God. Psalm 143, verse 10 comes to mind. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. So, beloved, we have these great, two great sources of help. We have the angels, we have the spirit. But you know what? Not only does the Catechism fail to mention the Holy Spirit directly, it also fails to mention an even greater source of help. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And if you ask, why is he the greatest source of help when it comes to living this third petition? It's because the prime goal and the dominant theme of his life is the will of God. And time and time again, he stresses this. You remember, he was 12 years old in that temple scene together with his parents And in a way, he kind of reminds them, and some think he rebukes them. Didn't you know that I had to be about my father's business? In other words, not your business, but God's business. And later on in his ministry, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. That's what I live for. And that's what I live by. And later he even says to his father, not my will, but your will be done. And what about this? Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Do you want to be in the same family as Jesus Christ? Well, then you better get with the family theme song. And it's about doing the will of the Father in heaven. You see, the entire life and ministry of our Lord is consumed with the doing of the will of God. That will dominates him. And he wants that will to dominate you and I as well. For why does he go to the cross? Why does he allow himself to be rejected, scorned, berated, tortured, ridiculed, beaten, and crucified? It's to break the power and the grip that sin has and disobedience has on the lives and hearts of all of us. It's to set us free. It's to open the way for us to know the will of God fully, to do the will of God perfectly, and to experience the will of God completely. So, beloved, as we pray the Lord's Prayer, And as we repeat this third petition, realize very well what you are doing. And realize, too, that only the Father, only God the Father can make this happen. Only He can see to the perfect doing of His will in heaven and on earth. And He will do it. Never doubt that. Never waver. His will shall be done on earth. Just as today it's being done in heaven. Pray for it. Look for it. Aim for it. Embrace it. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, 
please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.